Good day, fellow explorers. This is what we have for you on today's Impact Everywhere podcast. We are finding refugees, asylum seekers, internally displaced persons all around the world and bringing them together to create a new project where they are the ones telling their story about their experiences, rebuilding their lives in refugee camps, in new host communities, as potentially professional footballers through football. That is nothing to do with us creating any new work. That is purely finding these people, bringing them together and giving them a platform. Hello, friends, and welcome to Impact Everywhere, the podcast that looks for people having a positive impact in unexpected places. Our guest today is Matthew Barrett, and he is the co-founder of GoClick, a global football storytelling platform. I met Matthew a couple weeks ago on Clubhouse, and he was talking about how soccer could be used as a tool to spark conversations that would otherwise never happen and sensitize people to different cultures, different people, different issues. As someone who doesn't really care about sports, I was still intrigued because I always love to find these weird intersectional ways that impact happens in the world. So we decided to strike up a conversation. And I learned that over the last few years, because of GoldClick's unique approach, they've had the opportunity to partner with many of the largest companies and organizations in the world, including FIFA, UNHCR, Adidas, Qatar 2022, and so many more. Today's podcast was actually recorded live on Clubhouse under the Impact Everywhere Club. And so the great news about that is that you hear live contributions from members of the audience, and I think it added a whole different dimension to the experience. So not only do you get to hear and learn more about Matthew's approach, you also get to see others who are discovering this story for the first time and what their reactions are. I think you'll enjoy it. This is Matthew, and here he is sharing the origin story of GoClick. It's been around for about six years, starting off as a slightly crazy idea that's snowballed into my full-time occupation. GoClick is a global storytelling platform. What does that actually mean? We find people from all over the world and we ask them to tell their own story about their lives and their football communities. So it's very much the inside of you of people telling you their own stories rather than someone coming in from outside and telling it for them. And we work predominantly through the mediums of photography and written word. We're expanding into other media formats as well. And ultimately, we're trying to find inspirational, interesting people with unique perspectives on the world around them, whether they be elite athletes or whether they be from marginalized communities, refugees, people in conflict zones, women breaking barriers all around the world and everything in between. Awesome. So just to get this conversation started, I'd love to hear from you what football means to you and when you realize that it could be something more than just something maybe turn on, watch with your friends, or maybe just play in recess time? So the story I probably need to tell is when I was at university and I was studying a history degree, I was pretty obsessed with the Second World War. And my other obsession was sports, predominantly playing it. I've played football and cricket and tennis growing up, but it was at university when someone pointed out to me that I could combine my interest in politics and war with my interest in sport. And I guess from a more academic perspective, I actually ended up studying the role of sport in the British Army in the Second World War. And that was really the first moment where I thought there's something more to sport than just playing it. And it could definitely be a window into what's going on in the world in politics, in culture, in society. Because when I was looking at how normal people were using sport at a time of conflict, whether they be soldiers or whether they be civilians, it was 
really the first time that I thought that sport could tell a wider story from a social perspective. What's an example of how sports in times of conflict was a, is it, was it a good thing? Was it a bad thing? Can you expand on it a bit? I would say what was really interesting in the work that I was doing was seeing how sport became so prevalent for people and populations, particularly in the 1920s and the 1930s. Whereas for a long time, sport had always been seen as a pursuit of the upper classes, quite inaccessible, a way of playing to some kind of ideal of spirit and fair play. But over the time period in the early 20th century, it became a recreational activity for the masses. It's funny to think about that now because it really wasn't before then. It was only at that time where particularly football, but all sports started to be something that people did at weekends and for fun and something that people read about and supported teams. So we think today is the golden age of sport and football consumption, but you could argue that it was probably the 20s and 30s that was the real golden age. So that was something I was pretty blown away with and the massive expansion of people wanting to know what was going on in sport. And I know we're going down quite a niche here, but when I was looking at stories of soldiers all around the world, I found that there was this massive explosion of newspapers, the first real mass media, and half of the newspapers were all about sport. And you would think that if a soldier's in the middle of a jungle, the last thing he really cares about is how his football team is doing back at home or how the army is faring against the Navy on the football field, but that just wasn't the case. So I think what I've found is that through everything I've done, particularly with Goal Click, football and sport just strikes a chord with people that's almost irrational. So yeah, I, I think you can take that in many different directions, both playing, consuming, and then ultimately maybe understanding what's going on in the world. It has a bit of a unique way of breaking through when a lot of other things don't if that makes sense. The story that I remember is, I think, in the ni- 1914s in World War One, where there was like the trench wars and then the two sides coming together over Christmas just to put down their arms and play a game together was the idea of reconciliation that I had in mind. But I think you're talking about something a little bit more nuanced than that. Is that right? Can I talk about that 1914 example? Yeah, sure. I please. really dislike this story. It's used so much and forgive me, quite lazily as a way of saying football is this wonderful thing that brings people together. The actual story of that truce is of a very local, very short-lived reconciliation and the same people going back to kill each other the next day. It had no impact on the long term of those people's lives. It was a momentary blip. What I see sport doing today is that it has an incredible ability to be used for things that help education, help with conflict resolution, to help with gender equality, but it takes a lot of work. You can't just give a football and suddenly everything's fine. So I don't actually like that story because for me, it actually represents how sports shouldn't be used as a momentary thing. It takes a lot of work to use football for the right reasons around the world. I don't think football can necessarily save the world and I don't think it necessarily brings people together unless it's used alongside many other things. I always call this the Sepp Blatter model for football, which is give people a football and everyone will be okay and everyone will come together and we'll sing Kumbaya around the campfire. But actually, whilst football can bring people together at a local level, it's much more important about understanding and having empathy with other people more than this vision of bringing the world together. That's just my view. Other people may disagree. 
No, it's great. I love that you push back on it. And I'm sure this is also from experience in the work that you've done at GoalClick. So I think this is a great segue to dive a little bit deeper and some examples of how when used properly, sports can help with education, conflict resolution, and gender equality. Do you have a couple examples or a couple favorites that you guys have personally participated in and what that looks like? Definitely. And I will attempt to pick out some of the best ones. We have a lot of time for an organization that we work with called Spirit of Soccer, which operates in Iraq and many other countries, wherever there are landmines, because ultimately it's an education charity that uses football to educate children on the dangers of landmines and explosives. We worked with them in 2014 in northern Iraq, which was the height of Islamic State control in the region. And one of their coaches was our storyteller, our photographer. We had to keep him anonymous for obvious reasons as they were operating less than 30 miles from Islamic State controlled territory. Many of the coaches were under occupation by ISIS at the time, but the photos which show boys and girls playing football and being educated around the dangers of explosives of war are incredibly powerful, especially when you see women in hijabs coaching young boys and set within the context of what was going on at the time. I think the photography is extremely powerful and the words behind it are also extra powerful. So that's one that definitely stands out. Our first ever story came from Sierra Leone from the National Amputee Football Association of the country. Our first ever photographer was a church minister called Pastor Abraham Bangura, who was yeah a local minister and coach of the Amputee Football Association. And his photos were just so incredibly raw, powerful and intimate of the team playing on a beach in Freetown, Sierra Leone. We always ask the storyteller to write their own story behind the photos. And when Abraham describes football as a way to help reintegrate amputees into Sierra Leone society, it's it's very powerful. And, and the way it's used to then educate them and give them skills, it's, it's not just football for football's sake. It's the way of bringing people back into society. So yeah, the, the stories that tend to stand out for me are when you see football, but actually it's about education or a bigger purpose to what football is doing in the world and in that community. Wonderful. Those are such powerful stories. I'm wondering, in the five years that you've been doing work like this, have there been any lessons that you've learned, like mistakes that you made in early days as you were trying to document or share these stories that went awry for whatever reason? I think the fun answer would be working with analog film and working with postal services in every country in the world is glutton for punishment. I think that in the early days, we definitely suffered a little bit from people maybe occasionally going AWOL, cameras not getting where they're supposed to go, and maybe not really knowing how best to guide people in how we wanted them to tell their own story. It was deliberately imperfect process. Clearly, we've had a number of fails along the way from a pure photography perspective. But to be honest, we started this project without a grand aim or grand vision. We did it because we believed that we were onto something and it was a creative artistic project, but it's really grown as we've gone along. A common problem we've had is just making sure that we complete these projects in places which are often very hard to reach. It took four years to work in North Korea from start to finish. We did it in the end, but that's a long patient process, which we believe makes the results even more powerful. But yeah, maybe if we were starting again, I'd create a project that Maybe it wasn't so time intensive to, to set up. Yeah, I think one of the reasons why maybe you haven't encountered that many problems is that from the beginning, you were really adamant about putting cameras in the hands 
of people who are in these communities to tell their own stories as opposed to like parachuting an external individual into a setting where they didn't understand the story and the culture. And so as a result, you're really just playing the role of an amplifier. I have to ask though, like, why are you using analog cameras? You have this opportunity to tell these wonderful stories. At the very least, everyone has a phone and a phone arguably would do a better job than an analog camera. Is it stylistic? Is it strategic? Is it something else? Bit of everything. There's three main reasons why we start with analog disposable cameras. And I say start because the stories are then broadened out into written word, into audio, we're moving into video, spoken words, we do lots of photography exhibitions. But the reason we use disposable analog cameras is number one, for equality. We like the idea that everyone in the world who does this project has the same tool, whether it's a player for the US Women's National Team at the top of world football or a Syrian refugee in a Jordanian refugee camp. They have the same tool to tell their story. The second reason, which is probably the one that means most to me, is this idea of intentionality and patience and being deliberate in the stories that people tell. I think that, look, we all love digital technology. It's opened up the world for all of us. We're certainly not analog zealots, but there's something in the scarcity of analog film that we believe focuses the mind and actually possibly creates better quality photos because otherwise we could take a hundred photos and be spoiled for choice and never look at them again and they all wouldn't really mean anything. I appreciate that you are an expert digital photographer. So I actually would love to get your view on what I'm saying there. But the third reason is then for the pure aesthetics of it. It is different. It is unique. It is slightly imperfect. And we feel that means the storytelling can be more raw, more intimate. When we worked with the US Women's National Team ahead of the Women's World Cup, we got photos there from within the team that one, I don't believe anyone but a player could have got. And I also don't believe that they could have necessarily been taken on digital cameras because there's a real culture of posing, I think, for smartphone photos. Whereas this small little camera can almost appear by stealth. Yeah, it's an interesting strategy. I love the equality angle. I think there's something really cool there. I personally have shot very rarely analog, but I'll just blame the fact that I, I don't consider myself good enough to shoot analog. <laughs> it's just high risk. It's so high many, reward. Exactly. But I prefer shooting digital because the end result is important. But I can totally see how having an analog thing with a mentality of scarcity will change not only the way a photographer will interact, but also how the audience will interact with the piece. So I think there's something really interesting there. So if I understand correctly, the purpose of GoClick is really just to attempt to amplify stories that are already happening. You're not necessarily the one creating the art and activism combination on your own. Like You're not convening people. You're finding instances of this and you're highlighting them as storytellers. Is that correct? That's absolutely bang on. We describe ourselves as curators, not creators. There is no part of us that wants to go and create new initiatives to try and do things that we're not experts in. There are so many amazing people doing so many amazing things. But actually, what we find is that there's often a real gap in people actually telling those stories. Charities or NGOs or activists have their hands full with actually doing the meaningful work. There is definitely less people around trying to tell those stories on their behalf. And I think it's even more important that it comes from the participants themselves, because normally people would go in and tell that story on their behalf. I think there's something really powerful and really different about getting the people themselves to document it through their own eyes and through their own words. So yes, we are deliberately not implementing any new programs, but we are trying to find as many of these amazing stories and give them a bigger platform 
at scale. And that's where we can give value. One example of this is we're doing a project at the moment with the UNHCR around refugees. We are finding refugees, asylum seekers, internally displaced persons all around the world and bringing them together to create a new project where they are the ones telling their story about their experiences, rebuilding their lives in refugee camps, in new host communities, as potentially professional footballers through football. That is nothing to do with us creating any new work. That is purely finding these people, bringing them together and giving them a platform. So I have to ask you then, if you're in the business of raising awareness and spreading the word of amazing initiatives going on, how do you measure success? And what's the end goal? And where do you see yourself in five or 10 years? The success we wanted to start with was to work with big institutions such as FIFA, such as UEFA, such as the UN. And these are organizations that kind of are doing, they're doing good work or they want to tell these kind of stories, but it's so hard <laughs> to get the people themselves to tell their own story because, you know, user-generated content is hard. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes trust. It takes credibility. So what we want to do is we want to bring this approach into the more mainstream of the sport and development world. And that's what we're doing at the moment. What we would like to do is obviously continue to find new stories and people to be part of the project. But I think that they're starting to feel like we do need to make Gold Click a pathway to more opportunities for our storytellers in the future. At the moment, it's quite informal in the sense that someone would be part of Gold Click, we would publish their story, they might be part of a bigger campaign, there'd be lots of noise. And then after that, we try and you know, connect them with people for new opportunities. Other people might approach them. There's no formal pathway. So actually, I do feel like we need to start thinking about things we can offer people who participate in Gold Click more than just that awareness and kind of media coverage. Even though I personally do think that is totally valid and it's enough, we're starting to have a few conversations about how could Gold Click be part of a curriculum or how could Gold Click be part of a training process whereby people maybe go on and get jobs in the media, for instance, once they've done the Gold Click project. So those are things we're thinking about. There's nothing concrete right now, but we definitely have that ambition in the future. The other element of what we want to do is we definitely want to take this into new media formats and film and audio are the next frontiers for us. So I feel like we've only just started. We're only at photography and written word. Think how many more ways of telling these stories there are. But in terms of how I mark success, I like to work from the inside out of an industry, in this case, say the sports industry. I like to work with activists who are from the outside. But for me, success is bringing activist voices and maybe NGO activities and inspiring people into the mainstream so that people hear these stories rather than they be seen as something to do with charity or something to do with activism that doesn't exist in the mainstream. I love this idea of potentially finding ways to open source the Gold Click approach and able to tell stories and put them into a curriculum so that way you can scale beyond being an individual curator. It will always be limited by the size of your organization if you find a way to templatize it. When people stumble across these stories, when people stumble across these images, what kind of change in either society or individuals have you seen happen as a result? Is there a direct correlation between someone stumbling across a Gold Click story and seeing a culture in a different lens that you have? Is it mostly qualitative? Is it quantitative? How do you see that whole piece of the puzzle? 
I hope so. <laughs> and anecdotally, I think that a lot of these issues, whether it be gender equality, the plight of refugees, conflicts around the world, and even less worthy or impactful elements, but just the rights of elite women's players to have access to resources, infrastructure, or fan groups across the world being listened to and feeling like they have a voice. So whatever part of the world we're dealing with, I think that issues around social justice are not people's priority. Now, people might care. I don't think people don't care, but often they're not prioritized in people's lives. The majority of people, they're not going to seek out these stories. If they come across them, great. They might become a little bit more interested in them. And where I think that football has an amazing power to do that is it almost brings people in by stealth. <laughs> and that's not trying to trick anybody. Most of the people who have looked at the Gold Click Refugees series are not actively involved and interested necessarily in what's going on with the refugee crisis. But when you bring people in with football as a, a lens or a common language, I think you just get a very natural, almost organic understanding of the issue just by accident almost. So we're not really trying necessarily to preach to the converted. What I find the most pleasing is when someone who has never really engaged with issues like this before is brought into the house by the fact that we're talking about football. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think we have similar strategies in that sense where I see art as a top of funnel. I want to get people curious. I want them to look at what I'm doing, wonder what I'm doing, how I'm doing it. And then maybe at the end, we can talk about why. It seems like you're doing the same with football, which has an enormous following, an enormous fan base. And so you can Trojan horse your way into different issues. As I was browsing through your Instagram this morning, I was stumbling across a story of some Qatari ladies that were talking about what football meant to them. You know, it didn't matter if you were male or female, like you were allowed to play. And it was a place where those inequalities weren't present. I was like, oh, I'd never heard that perspective before. When you read the news, you don't hear individual stories like that. And I think there's something really interesting and powerful about all of that. I mean, let's talk Qatar if you want. It's a controversial subject and it's one that we might need to talk about. I personally was felt it really important that we did work in Qatar ahead of the World Cup because it was brought about a little bit by our, our Russia series that we did in 2018 for the Russian World Cup. In Russia, there was such a gulf between what the Western world was saying about Russia in advance, some of it valid, some of it definitely not, and the kind of picture that the Russian authorities were trying to project around Russia at the time. And there was this massive chasm in the middle where no one was really asking Russian people what they thought. So after our Russian series went pretty well and grabbed some attention, we thought we need to go and do some work in Qatar because that is a country where everyone has an opinion. And rightly or wrongly, it's hosting the World Cup. And again, I hadn't heard from a Qatari. <laughs> Apart from the Qatari authorities, I just didn't know what people in Qatar thought about the World Cup. I didn't know what the level of football culture was there. And we decided that we would create a big series there. In the end, the Qatar World Cup actually came on board and supported what we were doing and, and opened up a few extra doors. But we were there doing the work before that happened. And we found about 35 people from the country, about half of which were Qatari, half of which were long-term residents. One thing you just have to realize about Qatar is that there's 3 million people and only 250,000 are Qatari natives. So we felt it was really important to get their view on Qatar, on the football culture. And we learned some 
really incredible things, particularly around women and girls and the access they have to play football there. Now, clearly, there are huge issues around that tournament and around Qatar's treatment of its immigrant labour force and the whole way they are hosting that tournament. But there is another side to the story, which is what are the people that are saying? It's important. I've gone off a bit on one there. You probably had a direct question on Qatar. <laughs> no, no, not at all. We can talk macro, like what's the power of storytelling or otherwise. But I think every single time you speak about a real world story, right? Like these individual stories of people and place and the power that they hold. It's almost like zooming into each person's individual humanity, where I think lies the strength of what it is that you're doing. What do your critics say and how do you respond to them? I mean, not really. Are you saying that's too... No, I'm joking. No, no, I'm just, just out there. You've been doing this for five years and there's always going to be people that are bringing in different perspectives. So just curious to... Yeah, I wouldn't say that we've encountered that much criticism, which maybe I need to go and seek some out. I think that we're slightly immunized from criticism because of our approach to it being first-person storytelling. I think that if we were going into places and telling these stories, then I think there'd be a lot more problematic elements with it. I think the fact that we really just give the people the chance to tell their own truth really means that I'm not sure how much you can really criticize us for things because if you're criticizing our approach, you're almost silencing the voices of young female refugees, which I don't think anyone really wants to do. I think in terms of impact, yeah, we are what we are in terms of we're storytellers. We're a media organization. As I said before, we're not the ones creating any new initiatives. So our impact is harder to measure. There are lots of great people in, in the audience here who work for NGOs or work in the field of measurement who can say, we impacted this many people by doing this type of thing. And we can't do that, but we are wanting to help tell those people's stories. And yeah, that's what we'll continue to do. I know that's a bit of a answering that question. I think what's interesting is, so I come up from the perspective of a photographer and I've heard so many problems of photographers traveling into worlds that aren't their own and telling stories that don't belong to them. And it feels like you... Maybe it's because of your political science background or simply because of your love for football, have come up with this very ethical way of telling stories. I'm wondering, like, where did that come from? Is it something that just came to you intuitively? Is it something that you learned somewhere? Or how did you come up with this approach of storytelling that feels very honest and indisputable, really? I won't lie. There's an element of luck to it because we had this crazy idea to give people disposables. And then maybe after a little while, we realized that there was a broader social point to giving people that opportunity. I think the first year that we were doing Gold Click, were talking about it as a photography project. And that was the ethos. Whereas a little while into it, we were like, actually, what it's about is it's that first person perspective. So we learned that a little bit along the way and realized that the real powerful part of what we were doing was giving away control, giving away power, and frankly, getting out of the way. There's a slight irony with me being the person that is talking to you about this because our whole DNA is about me not really talking about it. Yes, we've set it up. Ultimately, we make sure that as best as we can, we're using the words of the people themselves. So often when I'm asked to do an interview for a media publication, I will say, it's fine if you want to ask me questions, 
But actually, could we like use as many of the words as possible of the people who participated in the project? Because this isn't about me or the people in GoldClick. This is about them. And so there is a bit of an irony in me being the person that's being interviewed about this, which I'm aware of. But yeah, it happened slightly by accident, but we realized very quickly that was the real power of what we we're doing. And it is quite unique because it, you know, it is really hard. It's like build up that trust and build up that credibility and have that patience to work with people for months. And it is always months. It's not weeks. It's not years apart from in North Korea. It is months where you get to know people. And actually, the spillover effect of that is that we are in contact with pretty much every single storyteller that we have done a story with. And we always try and introduce them to other people in the industry to give them new opportunities. And we should do a follow-up on this where you invite a number of different storytellers up onto Clubhouse. And I think it would be really cool to have those stories here. I fully agree. Uh, At the moment, there's probably only about two or three of our storytellers on Clubhouse. I've been asking a few of them. I would <laughs> Most love... people are on Android S. Yeah, Android definitely. And there's only three and a half million people in the world on Clubhouse. So it's going to take a while. There's one person in particular, our Rwandan storyteller, Eric Marangua, who was captain of the Rwandan national team in 1994 when the genocide broke out. He is Tutsi and he lost 35 members of his family in the Rwandan genocide. He was only spared because... His club president, who was a Hutu militia leader later indicted on war crimes, spared Eric because he wanted him to play in goal for his team after the genocide. And Eric's story is amazing. He has then dedicated his life to reconciliation through football in Rwanda. And he is someone that I absolutely want to bring onto Clubhouse, but he's an Android user. So there are, as you can imagine, Clubhouse feels like a very important platform for GoldClick going forward. And we definitely want to bring these voices onto the platform because I don't necessarily want to be talking about it. I'd like to probably be what you're doing and moderating for them to be heard. Absolutely. Thank you for um, showing up regardless on behalf of all of these people. Matthew, I think the work that you're doing is super fantastic. I'm curious, do you see a world in which GoldClick becomes something closer to an activist platform where it's pushing more for specific change on behalf of individuals? Or do you see it really just being that amplifier role of normalizing society and human beings and people? I think that it's possibly slightly more the latter. However, just naturally, we end up being the former. You can't do a series where you're working with 100 refugees and asylum seekers and not, by extension, be an advocate for refugee rights and empathy. So whilst our intention is not to be an activist platform, we can't help but be one when we are telling the stories of such inspirational people. The other thing I would say is that we haven't yet worked with people that might fit this description, but GoldClick is certainly not averse to telling stories from maybe more controversial parts of society. And by that, I would love to find some stories from within potentially far-right ultra fan groups because... I'm a big believer in dialogue. I'm a big believer in there's no point segmenting everyone off and and not interacting. So whilst the majority of our stories come from, you might say, the more activist and liberal elements of society, we also do want to make sure that we continue to sell stories from all parts of society, whatever the background, um, whatever the political leanings. Yeah, I, I don't think we'll ever get behind one's pause, but just naturally we end up advocating for many. I love that. That's 
so powerful. And I, I, I totally agree with you. Anything that can break apart the silos that we find ourselves in is a wonderful thing. And if sports can be the Trojan horse to make that happen through the stories that you tell, I would love to see more of that happen. So we have a number of people on stage. Abdullah, I don't know your story, but you're the first in line, followed by Cheryl. Abdullah, why don't you start us off? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Vaughn. I just wanted to say real quick that I'm glad you asked that question about the kind of the tensions with storytelling in different areas and platforms. And I think GoldClick's done a phenomenal job of that by like letting the story be in the hands of the storyteller. So like I come from a photography background as well, just like you, Vaughn. So it's always a little bit of a touchy subject. Matthew, question I have for you is in this current age of where like all these organizations and there's B Corps and the general demographic has expectation of corporations to have more social responsibility or environmental responsibility. We talked about GoldClick starting off as just an artistic lever and just an avenue to experience your artistic nature. How does GoldClick operate as providing people like you a job? which I'm very curious about. Not that every social or environmental endeavor needs to be monetarily gained, but just very curious about that. Going right into the right into the tough questions now, into the business models. So we are a social business, so we're not a charity. And that is a very deliberate choice. We do the majority of our stories for free, pro bono. So most of the stories I've spoken about today, there is no cost to the person telling the story, obviously, and we fund it ourselves. In order to do that, we need to be sustainable. And we develop bigger, deeper storytelling series with organizations in the sports world. So clubs, federations, leagues, brands. We've had the honor, genuinely honor, but I'm not just saying that, to work with people like Adidas, New York City Football Club, UEFA, Hamul, the Dutch FA, Qatar World Cup. And we have created bigger series with them because that then allows us to, one, sustain the business, give me a job, give me something to eat, and then also do the other projects that we really want to do. The Women's World Cup project that we did, the Refugees Project with the UN, the Homeless World Cup, that work we can only do because we are doing other series with more commercial entities. Great. Thank you for that answer, Matthew. Maybe I'll piggyback onto Abdullah's question then. When you do get paid and compensated, does the money funnel down? How does that flow? Not at the moment, because of the scale at which we're at. That would be a slightly problematic thing as well, because the majority of people that we work with are affiliated with organizations already. Particularly if you're thinking around, say, the refugee side of things, it would become very problematic very quickly if there was like direct payment from us to people. However, we make sure that we work with people who are being supported. And if we can help as well in other ways, we do. But yeah, the project is voluntary or people are nominated or recruited by organizations who are already supporting and working for those people. There's a really good example at the moment. We're working with three Rohingya refugees in Cox's Bazaar um, refugee camp. They are fellows of an organization which is guiding them through and supporting them in their training to be photographers. We're quite careful that we're not taking advantage of people and that we're working with people who are being supported in the right way by organizations. Look, in the future, would I like to see a more direct model of people taking part and being compensated based upon what we then make from those stories? Yes. At the moment, we're not necessarily making anything from those stories to then give it back to them, if that makes sense. Wonderful. Thanks for the answer. All right, Cheryl, you're up. Thanks, Ben. And Matthew, it's great to meet you. I love your work. Very important. As an immigration lawyer, I can appreciate the importance of storytelling. And I really appreciated your comments about being an outsider and empowering people to tell their own stories. 
But I also recognize that there's power in being an outsider in that you are able to help local people maybe see their neighbors in a new light or their situation in a new light. And I'm curious if you've witnessed this kind of transformation through the work that you're doing as well, not only telling the stories for people on the outside of these communities, but how can these stories transform the relationships within the communities and people themselves, individuals? Yeah, I think the first thing to say about all that is that clearly we are very pro documentary photographers and and storytellers who go into communities and tell those stories. This is not a crusade to say that no one should travel to a place and tell someone else's story. 99% of media is that. And we love that. There's no better or worse. This is just different. This is just a a slightly different slant on, on that storytelling. So yeah, there's definitely... There's no part of me that is necessarily against that happening, even though there may be problematic parts of some of it. Such a good question, the second part, and something I generally haven't thought too deeply about before in terms of how communities change once those stories are being told and whether they can have dialogue with others. God, it's a good question. So anecdotally, yes, I think it's clear that we are often told by particularly NGOs, that ultimately the photos and the the end product doesn't actually matter as much as the process of taking part. I know that sounds quite weird when you're talking about a creative project, but we are often informed that just being part of this, just having the opportunity is quite transformational in itself. Like talking to someone out of their country can sometimes be the first time that's ever happened before. And being part of a bigger, broader global project can really give confidence and change people's opinion of themselves. I know that there is definitely impact from people being part of this project and they do see themselves differently. I think particularly in refugee projects, we are told again and again that this is something that has been really valuable and actually a lot of other people have wanted to take part in whilst they've seen that storyteller kind of doing the project. So I know it's transformational. I wish I could prove it. And maybe I need to start thinking about that. This room has reminded me how much I love soccer. Like I usually take off the whole month during the World Cup. And I'm actually going to edit my profile to add soccer on it. So thanks. uh, Or football. Thanks, Juan Juan. (laughs) It's actually given me a whole new perspective and appreciation for soccer in a way that I just never took the time to think about. And sports in general, this is like totally the kind of conversations that I want to have. It's the kind of conversations that I'm hoping to host in this club here at Impact Everywhere. We have Preeti. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. And Tanya. Also, sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, but that's the order we're going to go in. Could you correct me if I got your name wrong, please? No, that's perfect. I love the fact that, Ben, you met Matt on Clubhouse you thought he was interesting. You brought him on here. You guys had an incredible discussion. John had something to offer and potentially something great is going to come out of this. And I think, first of all, that's just, that's amazing. And I think that's exactly what this platform is for. Very excited. Full disclosure, I know Matt and I've been a fan of Gold Click for a very long time. I guess I have two questions and they're sort of linked. So I come very much from the other end of the spectrum to you guys in the I measure sports social impact using data. For me, we have wonderful stories in sport. And I love the title of this because it is controversial. Can it save the world? My answer is, can I see the data? However, storytelling is such a big part of that. And I guess as an evaluator, my questions are, Matt, you talked earlier about the fact that you don't brief 
the storytellers, how do you deal with response bias? Often, I think especially in the developing world, and, and we all do lots of work in this area, how do you make sure they're not telling the story that they think you want them to tell as opposed to the actual story? Because I think sometimes people feel like they need to show themselves or their countries or their communities in a particular light because the world is going to see it. How do you make sure that their story is authentic? And secondly, and I guess it's the, the flip side of this, both of us work in Qatar and we've seen good examples of this. Do you say no? So what if somebody comes to you and says, hey, here is the story I want to tell and it's propaganda. Is it your place as a curator to say no? Or do you just say, no, you know what? You're allowed to tell any story you want because this isn't about us. So I, I'm looking at it from both ends of the spectrum and I'm keen as a data person to understand how we would, is, is it our place to sense check it or do you just take it as gospel? Love those questions. I will try and answer them both in kind of one overarching thought. First of all, as a funny aside, I've only really ever had one example where someone has written their story as though it's like a press release or like a website entry where it was just totally not human. And you know, we went back and we said, that's not really the spirit of what we're doing. We're trying to get your opinions and your thoughts. I think we are helped by the fact that we take quite a long time to get to know and guide our storytellers. We don't tell them what to do. We don't train them, but we definitely do give them the context of what we're doing and the feeling of what we want to project. We want them to be as honest as possible. In terms of the broader question around showing what they think we want to see, everyone is self-censoring the entire time. That sentence that I just said right there, I'm censoring myself at this very moment. Everything I say is based really upon how I want you to see me and how I want you to hear me. So everything in the whole world is ultimately people trying to project what they want someone to see. That's my view anyway. So I actually think it's very interesting what we get back from, say, North Korea or Qatar, because clearly it's being created within the framework and the outline of what that country is. There is a limit to what people in Qatar or Iran or North Korea can catch on a camera and can say. It just is. But equally, that's probably also true of us right now. So we're all operating under various degrees of censorship and self-censorship, to my mind. In some countries, it's clearly more than others. But I think there's still value in seeing someone's truth, even if it's within the context of a more censored environment. People might not agree with that, but that's what I believe. Hey, Preeti, could I ask you, I'm just really curious to hear a little bit about the data side of what you do. So what do you measure when you measure the impact of sports in people's lives? What are the, the metrics that you decide to track and what's considered good and bad? Thank you. So I work with EFT organizations that Matt has mentioned. And my side of it is them collecting quant and qual data. How many people are you reaching? What do you know about them? How do we know that behavior changes happen? I think the issue with sport, with soccer, with football, with sport is because we see the good or we think we see the good, we don't ever examine it because there's loads of anecdotal stories. What we do is we say, right, can we track people over a period of time and account for dead weight? So what would have happened anyway? So we're basically saying, okay, let's imagine you're working with 100 kids in whatever the, the social context is that you're working in. Are we saying that because they have had an interaction with sport, 
their confidence has improved. So the example Matt gave earlier about Spirit of Soccer, we also work with them. And the piece of work I do in Iraq with Spirit of Soccer is saying, are fighting age males in ISIS-controlled territories less likely to join a gang because they have a community in football? Now, the only way for us to know that is to track them over a period of time and ask them the right questions and get their own feedback. In some sense, it's very similar to what Matt's doing in that we're trying to get their perspective on it. But the way we do it is we quantify it. So we're saying, okay, you've done X number of hours of playing football. You've met X number of people. Will we do a baseline? What did you think about these things before you joined that football team? What do you think about these things now? And if we have enough of a sample size, can we say that sport actually is making a contribution to your attitudes and behaviors? Now, interestingly, and I've been doing this for a long time, data only tells one side of the story because the other side is what GoalClick does is actually, can I see it from your eyes as opposed to, I can read some numbers on a spreadsheet and the numbers are saying 67% of fighting age males are less likely to join a gang. But actually, if I add that to the story and I see the photos and I see the narrative, that is giving us a good idea of whether this actually works or not. And if it works, then surely should we not be investing more money in sport because sport is doing something that something else cannot. It's building a community, it's building tolerance, it's building confidence and all of these other things. They go hand in hand. It's just, I think, sport for development has always been one or the other. And I think what Matt's doing is such a great way of bringing them both together. Amazing. Thank you so much for answering that question. I love the 67% statistic. I think these two stories hand in hand are indeed a more complete picture. So super cool that you guys get to work together on that. Tanya, you've been waiting uh, for a while on the stage. Would you like to add your contribution? Thanks, Ron. Matt, great stuff you're doing. Absolutely amazing. I love the photos on the page and the website of GoClick. I've always believed that sports is a true way to helping us bring peace and, and love and togetherness in the world that we live in. I grew up in Nigeria and I played football on the streets in Nigeria. And now I live in the UK and the environments in which I played football, two very polar opposites in playing football here in the UK and playing football in Nigeria. So it's just, again, it's just great to help that understanding. I never could explain it to people verbally, but the photos, yeah, do a lot more justice to that story. Can you tell us what was your experience in Nigeria in terms of playing football? How did you play football? Give us one. <laughs> My mom always didn't want me to go out and play football on the streets in Nigeria because she thought it was inherently dangerous. So I'd sneak out. She'd buy a football for me. I only had a very small space in my own house to play it. And I was the only person who played football in my house. So it was just me playing by myself. So I'd have to sneak out with my ball. And then there was all these other kids who, whenever I brought my ball, they let me play five or 10 minutes <laughs> because I was the owner of the football. And then they kicked me out because I was not just good enough or as good as they were because they were at it every day on the streets consistently. So it's about flair. It's about the entertainment when you play in those sort of scenarios. It's about also about a little bit of competition because you had to win. And if you didn't win, you, your team goes out and you might not get to play again because there's so many people trying to play. 
But you set up goalposts on the street with whatever you can find, with shoes, with stones, with blocks. And then you play for as, as long as possible, sometimes into the night when no one could actually see the ball. And sometimes they didn't even stop for the cars. The cars had to stop <laughs> till the ball went out to be able to pass the road. So it was just all around craziness. Sometimes someone would kick the ball far away and they would spend hours trying to organize how to find a new ball. Just can you imagine? And then me personally, I'd have to get someone to look out for my mom or my parents when they're coming back home. So I could run back into the house, wash my feet and act like I've been indoors all this while. Sometimes my mom found out because obviously I was sweating and I was a smelly mess about having played out and I could not wash my feet quick enough sometimes. Sometimes I got away with it. But yeah, all those kind of anecdotes. Sometimes I couldn't tell you enough. The pictures do a better justice. I've been laughing while you've been talking some of those moments. And isn't it amazing? And I hope everyone in this room agrees. I feel like I have a, a better understanding of your life growing up and I've had so many images in my mind of what your life was through football, not necessarily just like all about the football, but when you talk about your relationship with your mum and I'm getting a sense of kind of what your childhood was like growing up and what it's like to grow up as a young boy in Nigeria. And that's really what Gold Kick is about. It's not about someone telling your story. It's about you bringing it to life in your own words and images in, in the case of Gold Click as well. So thank you for sharing that with us. That was actually probably my favourite part of this podcast today, just like hearing your experiences of football growing up. Love it. Love it. Yeah, it was definitely powerful. Seeing the humanity in these stories is so powerful. Hey, Matthew, do you want to give any final words before I, I close out the room? I just want to be respectful of your time. I'd call this a very good use of my time and all of our time. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I think the one thing I always leave people with is that GoalClick is only as good as the people that we work with. People go on about collaboration a lot, but literally without collaboration, we wouldn't have anything. It relies on NGOs, organizations working with us. It relies on bigger sports organizations working with us. It relies on the people themselves wanting to tell their story. So if anybody does know of people involved in the world of football and you think that there is a great story out there that needs telling, We'd love to hear from you. We're particularly interested in the refugee sector and we're particularly interested in countries which might not seem as obvious. If anyone knows anyone in Antarctica who's playing football, I would love to hear from them. Amazing. Thank you so much. That was Matthew Barrett, folks, the founder of GoalClick. You can go find him anywhere on all the social media platforms under GoalClick. That's G-O-A-L-C-L-I-C-K. As always, there are show notes, quotes, summaries, and everything that you need to share this beautiful message out into the world on impacteverywhere.org. And if you want to join these conversations live, I host rooms on Clubhouse on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Saturdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Some of them are recorded. Some of them are just casual, getting to know one another. Just hunt me down there at Von Wong or look for the Impact Everywhere Club. With that being said, folks, I hope you have a wonderful week. Stay positive, stay curious, because impact is everywhere.